0: Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We are going to finish this chapter this morning, and it is all about everything that we've sung about this morning. It's comfort and joy. It's peace and joy in the midst of trials and sorrow. It's the foundation for our joy, the foundation for our peace, building on the rock the rock of ages, come cling to the cornerstone. Our salvation is found in Him alone, and I would also say our joy and our peace is found in Him alone. John 16, we are in the middle of the Upper Room discourse. At this point, they actually aren't in the Upper Room anymore. They are either walking to the Garden of Gethsemane or in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just told His disciples that they will be hated by the world, And that he is leaving them. Again, he has told them several times, I'm leaving you, I'm going away. But this time he clarified very specifically, it is for your good that I am leaving. It's for your advantage because if I don't leave the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter will not come. And so he tells us about the work of the Holy Spirit. He told us last week of the promise of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the world and the work of the Spirit in the life of the disciples and the life of believers. Now we come to the end of really his teaching. He's still going to teach us in his prayers, but John chapter 17 is all a prayer. It's one prayer, and he's going to direct his focus from the disciples to, to the Father. He's going to change his emphasis. Instead of teaching the disciples, he's going to pray to the Father. So this really ends the discourse section, the, the teaching and instruction. He's going to finish this section by teaching a radical paradigm shift And it is this, the very thing that will bring you sorrow will bring you joy. He's going to teach on joy and peace in the midst of trials and sorrow. And and this morning he will help us see, just like he did with his disciples so many years ago, what the foundation for our joy and of our peace truly is. So let's read these verses together. John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They were saying this to one another, and they were saying, What is this that he is saying a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus knew that they wished to question him, so he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father." In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request to the Father on your behalf, because the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and because you've believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. But these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. There isn't a one of us in this room that will not experience sorrow. Jesus promised that in this world you will have tribulation. You have it now. God, I know that there are many, even in this room, who are experiencing tribulation, trial, suffering, and sorrow at this very moment. And I pray that these words that Jesus spoke so many years ago would be a healing balm for their soul as they see they have a joy and a peace that no one can ever take away. God, I pray that you would bring security to that joy and to that peace, that we would build walls around our joy and our peace because of what the Word of God says. And that for those in this room that are currently experiencing just bliss and no suffering and no sorrow, God, I pray that they would be wise to hear these words and prepare their souls for the moment when circumstances would try to steal their joy. May they hear this morning that there is nothing that can ever take away their joy if they are in you and your words abide in them. So Holy Spirit, be our guide, be our teacher, instruct us, comfort us, help us, and lead us in all truth. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. If I would ask you, what is the common thread that runs through every single human being? What, if you distill everything down, every desire, every goal, every ambition, if you, desire, if you distill it down to the, the lowest common denominator, the least common, what's the thread that runs through every single human being? I would submit to you that I think it's every human being wants to be happy. Every single human being is trying to pursue happiness, but with the qualification that it would be lasting happiness. Not happiness that just is fleeting. Not the happiness that is here today, gone tomorrow. Kind of like the Christmas blues happiness, right? We enjoy the holiday season, and then it's over, we take the lights down, and we feel a little bit sad inside. We don't want that kind of happiness. We want lasting happiness, but life is hard. Life is filled with sorrow and suffering and pain and trials. So how are we to be happy and have joy in the midst of hard times? In the midst of sadness, we're given commands like Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How are we to do this when life is incredibly challenging? Since God is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, he makes provision through Jesus for us to have joy in any circumstance that we would find ourselves And that desire that we all have to be satisfied can be met in Christ in a way that it will never be taken away, but only in Christ. Here in the upper room, Jesus could have said, you know what, just wait a couple days. Things are going to be hard. Just wait a couple days. It'll all get better. You'll be fine. But instead, he takes time as a sympathetic high priest desiring to give hope and give joy, he takes time to teach in this moment and so say, you're going to need instruction for the next couple hours because Jesus knows, Proverbs thirteen twelve. hope deferred makes the heart sick. Lack of hope eliminates joy. Fear and lack of peace go together. He knows this. And so he's going to teach them that in the middle of what you most do not want to have happen, you can have the greatest joy imaginable. In the middle of what you most do not want to have happen, you can be the happiest you could possibly be. What is Christian joy? What is joy? What does it mean to truly have joy? Christian joy is an emotion springing from a deep down confidence that God is in control. He's sovereign, and he will bring about your good and his glory. Joy is a confidence deep down inside that leads itself to live out emotionally, trusting that God is in complete control and he will bring about your good and his glory both now and forevermore. So my question to us this morning is, do we have joy, do we have peace that is absolutely impervious to any circumstance in life? Or do we have joy that can be taken away? Because Jesus says you will be given a joy. You will have a joy that will never be taken away. And I pray and I I hope that God would reveal to us this morning where our joy truly lies. Do we have a foundation in something that will be taken away? Or do we have a foundation in something that will never be moved? So, large section of scripture. I think they go together. That's why I didn't want to break them up. But I want to see the thread that runs through both, and really it's the foundation of our joy and our peace. We're going to split it up into those two points. The foundation of our joy is in verses 16 through 24, and the foundation of our peace is in verses 25 through 33. So there's two foundations for each. There's two foundations for joy that Jesus gives to his disciples and to us as well. And there's two foundations for peace. Let's start in verse 16 with the first foundation of joy, and it is this, unbreakable assurance in the work of the Son. If you want to have peace, if you want to have joy, if you want to specifically have joy in the midst of whatever circumstance you're going through, you must have unbreakable assurance in the work of the Son. Verse 16, Jesus says, A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. What does that mean? I'm with the disciples on this one. Uh, They say, what is he saying? What is he talking about? What does it mean? Here's three options as to what it could mean. A little while, and you will no longer see me. As in, I'm going to die, be raised from the dead, ascend into heaven, and you're not going to see me. And then a little while, and you will see me, meaning the second coming. There's some people who take that view. I personally don't, because it's not a little while for his second coming a little while and you won't see me, that would be uh, through Resurrection Sunday, and then 40 days after that, you won't see me because I'm gone, and then thousands of years, and you will see me, the disciples aren't going to see him because they're going to be with him when they die, so I don't think that that one is correct. It could be, second view, when Jesus is crucified and raised, a little while and you won't see me because I'm going to die, and then a little while and you will see me. There's some difficulties to this, uh, because... The disciples did see him after this. Peter and John are going to see him after this, um, during the trials and the crucifixion. But I think that that's a little bit closer to what Jesus is saying. But in context, Jesus had said several times, you won't see me because I'm going to the Father, but then you will see me, or I will be with you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the third option is that You won't see me when I ascend, but then you will see me, or I will be with you in the Spirit. And I personally believe it's a mixture of option two and option three. The good news is, the disciples ask the question I'm asking. What do you mean? What is happening? And Jesus never answers it. So the good news is, we don't need the answer to know the truth of what he's about to say. Because he's going to, instead of answering their question, here, let me explain what the little while is, let me tell you where I'm going, let me tell you what's going to happen, let me tell you when I'm coming back. Instead, he just says, I'm, I'm going to be gone, you're going to be sad, but let me tell you how you can be happy in the midst of the grief. So, a little while, and you will no longer see me, And then again, a little while, and you will see me. And his disciples, what does this mean? What's happening? And they're asking that. Verse 18, what is he saying? A little while, we don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus knows their need. He knows that they wish to question, in verse 19, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you you will see me? He knows the answer is yes. That's what we want to know. What, What is this little while? What's happening? But Jesus says, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. He responds to their need and not to their question. He knows their need, and their need is to have impervious joy. That no matter what happens, no matter what the, in a little while I'm going to be gone, and in a little while I'm going to come back, no matter what that means, you will still have joy in the midst of whatever suffering and sorrow you might be going through. Ultimately, they had been given all the information that they needed, but they weren't focusing on the truth. So Jesus, in his grace, prepares them yet again. He prepares them yet again. He could have just said, you know what? Hang on, a couple more days, you'll figure it all out. But he says, let me prepare you, let me teach you for these next couple days. So he begins teaching them, truly I say to you that you will weep and lament. And while you're doing that, the world will rejoice. The very same action that will bring you sorrow will bring the world joy. That's why I believe Jesus is saying, in a little while you won't see me. That's his death. The world is going to rejoice. They're going to rejoice. I mean, just think about the Pharisees eating dinner on Friday night after Jesus has been crucified and taken down from the cross. What must they have been thinking? We've won. We killed our enemy. What must the disciples have been thinking. For the the next three days, I think that the disciples are thinking about the last three years. Over the course of three days, they're just thinking, did we make a mistake? We followed a man who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Son of God. We believed him. Did we make a mistake? Because now he's dead and he's in a tomb. The world will rejoice. But the very thing that brings them joy and brings you grief that very same thing will be turned into your joy. Notice how he says this in verse 20. Your grief will be turned into joy. He does not say your grief will be exchanged for joy, as in you're having bad circumstances, let me take those away, let me give you new ones, and then you'll be happy. No, he says the very same thing that is causing you grief, the exact same event that is causing you grief, will cause you joy. And to illustrate that, in verse 21, he gives us a little parable of sorts. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. This doesn't mean that women forget. All of you women who have had babies, you don't forget that pain. Just a a couple seconds of remembering what that was like, and it will will make your, your skin crawl. But what he's saying is, the very same event that is causing you the greatest agony that you've ever gone through, when that baby is born, you rejoice over that event. You rejoice over what just happened. The very same event that causes you grief brings about the greatest joy. This is Genesis fifty twenty. when Joseph said, what you meant for evil... God meant for good. The very same action. It's not you had a plan, but God had a different one, so he, as as you worked your plan out, he decided, oh, i got to do something to fix that. No, it's the exact same event. What is bringing you sorrow? God says, I'm using that to bring you joy. Therefore, the very thing in your life right now that is causing you grief, if you were to take it away, that's, that's our typical prayer, if we're honest, right? God, please give me relief. I don't want to have to go through this anymore. I want this to be done. Get rid of this trial. Get rid of this suffering. Get rid of this sorrow. Just make it end. I don't want it anymore. Please hear clearly this morning that if you were to ask God for that and he were to say yes, let me just take your grief away. Let me take your sorrow. Then he's taking your joy. Because he says that the very thing that is causing you sorrow is the exact same thing that will cause you the greatest joy. So, Asking God to take away your sorrow and to remove what's causing the grief is asking God to take away your joy. This is James chapter 1. Rejoice in the midst of your trials knowing that they're producing something. You don't have to say, God, take this away. I don't want this anymore. The better prayer would be to say, God, show me what it is that you're producing in my life that is causing me joy. Jim Boyce, when he was diagnosed with cancer and his church asked, should we be praying for you? He said, absolutely. It's just the question of what are you to be praying for? Um, He said, you know what? Pray for healing. That'd be great. I, I see in Scripture, though, that usually God brings glory, greatest glory to himself by not healing somebody and allowing them to go through the trial and the suffering and to rejoice in God anyway. So he said, pray most for God's glory to be revealed. And then he said this, if you were to change the cancer that I have, you would make what God's plan is for my life worse. You would take away the joy that he's producing in my life. And so he, he turned that to the congregation and said, are you praying for something, for God to remove something? If you could change it, you would make it worse. Instead, trust God in the midst of it, because the very same thing that is going to bring you grief is going to bring you joy. Verse 22, that's what he says, Therefore you too have grief now, just like the woman who is in labor has grief. But I will see you again. This is why I believe at this point it's in the resurrection. I will be with you again. And notice not you will see me, even though he already said that. You're going to see me again. He says, I'm going to be with you. I will see you again. I'm going to come to you. And your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. This is unbreakable assurance in the work of the Son. What... What produces impervious joy? It's seeing that Jesus has gone to the cross and that he has been raised from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death. Nobody can take your joy away from you. I mean, just think, what's the worst the world can do to you? They can kill you. And you have a, a resurrected Savior. You have a Savior who has done death. He's passed through death. He has been brought to newness of life. And he offers you that same resurrected life. So, if they kill me, they make my day. The very thing that will bring them joy in trying to kill Christianity will bring me the greatest joy possible because I will have gain. To live as Christ. To die is gain. Therefore, they have no way to touch my joy. My joy is in the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And nobody can take our joy away from us. Christopher Fowler says it this way, they have, believers have, joy and comfort that the angels cannot give and evils cannot take away. Since nobody can take your salvation away, nobody can take your joy away. The two go hand in hand. If Christ suffered, bled, and died on your behalf and was raised from the dead on your behalf for you, and he has purchased for you salvation that is unassailable, then your joy is as well. The reality is, since nobody can take away your salvation, then no one can take away your joy. And if no one can take away your joy, believers should be the happiest people in the world. There should be no such thing as an unhappy Christian. Nobody can take your joy. Nobody can touch your joy. Your joy will be made full in an inexhaustible way. So the question that we have before us this morning is, what does take our joy? What takes our joy away? Show me what you find your joy in, that when it is taken away, you cease to have joy, and I can show you your functional God. I can show you what you truly worship. This is the meditation for us. What does it mean for no one to take our joy from us? What circumstance in your life would take joy, would steal joy? The reality is joy has very little to do with our circumstances and more to do with spiritual realities. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, you receive the word with joy in the midst of tribulation. Why? Because you've been given the word that is able to save your souls So Jesus says, look, here's the plan. I'm leaving, but I will see you again. And when I do, the plan of salvation will be known, and you will be given joy on that day. Your heart will rejoice because you'll be given joy that will never be taken away. The revelation of the gospel in its fullness informs sustained joy. So what's the foundation of our joy? It's an unbreakable assurance and confidence in the work of the Son— And then secondly, a second foundation of joy is unlimited access to the Father. Unlimited access to the Father. This is verses 23 through 24. Jesus says, in that day, and I believe that in that day, it's not on that day, on the day that you see me after I've been raised from the dead. I believe it's in that day as far as in the day after that moment. And I believe that Jesus is now referring to Pentecost. In the day when the Spirit comes... You will no longer question me about anything. You won't ask me about anything. Jesus had been the disciple's personal Wikipedia page, and at this point, you're never going to ask me anything. You don't need to. Why? Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. You don't have to ask me. Ask the Father. But you have to ask the Father in my name. And he says this in verse 24. Up until now, you've never asked for anything in my name. That's never happened. Think about the Lord's Prayer, right? Matthew chapter uh, 6. The Lord's Prayer. um, There's no end of that prayer that says, and in Jesus' name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no need for it in Jesus' name. Jesus had not done the work that he was going to do to give us access to the Father. But now, since Jesus is going away to die and provide us a way to the Father, access to the Father, now you're going to ask in Jesus' name. And as you ask... You will receive, end of verse 24, so that your joy will be made full. You want joy? Number one, you need assurance in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. And number two, you need to know the unlimited access you have before the Father. You need to know the unlimited access you have. You can constantly, every second of every day, go before Him. Is in my name, some people think it's the the Christian abracadabra, just in my name and God will give me what I want. No. In my name. It's in harmony with Jesus' character. It's consistent with his person, acting in accordance with his will. You could write down 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. 1 John, I believe, is John's exposition of the upper room discourse. And John says in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. According to his will, in his name, according to his plan for us. Back in chapter 14, verse 13, pray in his name so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. Praying so that the Father would be glorified. So in my name filters our requests, right? It filters out what we can and cannot pray for. And it at least gives us four aspects of this filter. Number one, in my name is saying for God's fame. This rules out a million of my desires. This is for God's fame, not my own. My request will change when I'm asking God to make himself famous and not myself famous. Number two, it's because of his worth, not my worth. So my request will be shaped because of his grandeur, his worth, his splendor. Number three, it'll be on the basis of the payment that Jesus made on the cross. So you can't come without the gospel and number four, it will be according to his sovereign wisdom. Not my will, God, but yours be done. Jim Boyce says this, Much modern prayer, even by serious Christian people, is useless and ineffective because the people involved approach God thinking that he's obliged to grant their requests because of something they themselves have done for him. Here's a request that I have for you, God, and see, I've done a lot of really good things talked about this when we were in chapter 14, that IRS relationship with God. Um, I need some deductions here because look at what I've done and, and you should give me a little bit of a break. But when we say, in the name of Jesus, based on his work, his character, consistent with his will, but based on his merit, not my own. Praying in Jesus' name means coming to the Father on the basis of Jesus' merit and praying in correspondence to his character. So both of these aspects, prayer, unlimited access before God, and unbreakable assurance in the work of the Son, these are the foundations that Jesus says, if you have these two, your joy will be full and nobody will ever be able to take that joy away. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He moves on to peace. This is point number two. What are our foundations of peace? So we have foundations of joy, and then Jesus is going to say, I want to give you foundations of peace as well. What are the foundations of peace? Verse 25 through through, uh, 28, 25 through 28 gives us the first foundation of peace. I would say it this way, unrestrained affection from the Father. Unrestrained affection from the Father. This is a foundation that we have of peace. Pick it up in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language is a word for parable-like. I've used veiled language. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the light of the world. They have to be detailed and specified and explained. There have been pieces. We talked about this last week. Jesus was constantly saying... When he healed somebody, don't tell people who I am. When he, when he would heal or raise people from the dead or heal people, don't go telling people what I've done for you or who I am because the fullness of the gospel message hadn't been proclaimed. Jesus didn't want to be known merely as a miracle worker to heal your physical afflictions. He wanted to be known as your Savior to heal you of your spiritual afflictions. The, the biggest problem we have, our sin, which is an offense against a holy God, So Jesus says, look, I've been speaking in figurative language, but an hour is coming when I'm no longer going to speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. It's it's kind of been in black and white up, up until now, but it's going to be all in color once I'm raised from the dead and you have the Spirit. You'll figure it out. It's going to make total sense. So he says, don't worry. The truth will be understood plainly through the Scriptures, through the Holy Spirit coming And he will guide us in all truth. The Holy Spirit will do that. In that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. You know, there's several different Greek words for love. You would think that this is agape love, right? Unconditional covenant keeping love. And God does love us that way. But it's interesting to note that's not what this word is. This is phileo. This is familial love. This is brotherly love. This is, uh, you could translate it, really likes being with you. I do not say that I'm going to request to the Father on your behalf because I don't need to ask on your behalf. Because the Father knows what you need and he loves you. He likes you. He likes to be with you the one who was your enemy because of your sin, the one whose wrath was abiding on you because of your sin, I am going to do away with it, so now he is your friend. He is your Abba. What Jesus is saying is, look, if, if the Father loves you like that, with deep affection, longing to be with you, making every possible provision so that you could be with him, if he loves me like that, it'll all be okay. I have the sovereign ruler of the universe, the creator of every single molecule in this world who sees me and knows everything there is to know about me. It's easy to make friends with people, right? It's very easy if you just don't tell them everything about you. It's so easy just, hey, put on a good face, here's a good friend, here's who I am, and you can be friends with anybody you want to be friends with. But try being friends when you reveal everything about the wickedness in your heart. Hey, this is who I really am. Your your friend list starts getting pared down. God knows every single thing there is to know about me. And he says, I love you. We are seen in the righteousness of the Son, right? And since we're seen in the righteousness of the Son... What does the Father say about the Son? This is my beloved Son who pleases me. I'm well pleased by Him. That's what the Father says about you and about me as well since we're covered in the righteousness of the Son. We please Him. If God loves me like that, knowing everything there is to know about me, I'll be okay. This brings peace. Morris Roberts, who's the editor of uh, the Banner of Truth magazine, which is Uh, We got the Valley of Vision that we went through on Thanksgiving Eve service, uh, Banner of Truth Publisher. It's just five decades of awesomeness. Uh, They're just amazing. Um, Morris Roberts, who's the main editor, said this, the thought of God should be the Christian's euphoria. It should cure all ills at a single stroke. And what an infinity there is in the thought of God. Nothing can approach in beauty to the idea of the true and living God. That there exists a being who is infinite in power and knowledge and goodness, and that that being cares for me with a perfect love as though I were the only man in existence, that he loved me before I was born and created me to enjoy him eternally, and that he sent his son to suffer the agony of the cross to secure my eternal happiness, that surely must be the thought to end all sorrow. If the Father loves us like that, we can have peace like a river attending our way, even when sorrows like sea billows rule. We can have peace. Notice, he says, it's only for those who love the Father and the love of the Father is in them. Verse 47, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. This is the condition, but it's not saying if you want God to love you, you have to love him. It's saying, because we love him, we know that he first loved us. That's what John's going to tell us. We couldn't love him if he hadn't first loved us. So if you love Jesus, you know that the Father loves you. It's an evidence of of grace. And if you love him, you will keep his commandments. And if you love him like this, you can experience all sorts of suffering, all sorts of sorrow, and be faithful and be at peace. So we have one foundation of peace, The love that the Father has, an unrestrained affection, just pouring out love upon us. And finally, we'll end with really a bookend. It's it's the other half of the first point. We'll call it unassailable assurance in the work of the Son. But it's really the same unbreakable confidence in the work that the Son has done. If you want to have joy and you want to have peace, and that's why I wanted to put these two together because I think they go so well together in the upper room discourse. If you want to have joy and peace, the the foundation is in the exact same thing. It's in the work that the Son did on our behalf. He says, verse 28, I came forth from the Father, I've come into the world, and I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. And his disciples say, we got it. Finally, we figured it out. We know who you are. We know what your mission is. We're good to go. It really would have been awesome if the upper room discourse had ended before this. Because yet again, we have the disciples sticking their feet in their mouth, right? We have the disciples saying, we got it. We know it. And D.A. Carson so perfectly says, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. Now, I don't have a misunderstanding about anything. I figured it all out. D.A. Carson says, yeah, that's pretty pathetic. They think they understand what's happening. They don't fully, but at least they're saying truths now. They're saying, okay, we know you've come from the Father. We know that you were speaking plainly to us. Now we've figured it out. You came from God. You're going back to God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, verse 31, do you now believe? Now, it doesn't have to be an interrogative. It's an indicative, which in the Greek, it doesn't have to be a question. It could be a statement. You now believe. But I think why there's a question that's implied here. Do you now? Is it now that you're believing? I think there's two reasons why Jesus is um, kind of questioning their faith at this point. He's not terribly impressed by their declaration. We figured it all out. We understand what's happening. There's two reasons why. Number one, it took them three and a half years to get to this place. Now you figured it all out? You didn't figure it out when I calmed the storm. You didn't figure out when I raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. You didn't didn't figure out when I raised Lazarus. Now you understand. Now you believe. Took you a little while. But second, Jesus knows that this newfound boldness of faith is about to leave in a couple hours because they're going to flee and run away and Peter's going to curse the guard and say, I never knew him. So you're going to run in just a few moments. I don't know If your faith is genuine, it's it's full right now. I know you say that. But he says this. Do you now believe, verse 32, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. You're going to run. Each to his own home. And you're going to leave me alone. But, interesting note, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. What does that make you think of? You all will leave me But I won't be alone because the Father will be with me. That's a true statement all the way up until darkness hits at noon on Good Friday. When the sun should be shining in its fullness, the sky goes dark, and what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says, I I can do anything because the Father's with me, I'll be okay. You will leave, I'll be okay. And then on the cross, he's forsaken. He's forsaken because of me. He's forsaken because of our sin. So he says, I'm going to leave. You will be scattered. But all these things, verse 33, I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome The world. I have. It's past tense. It's already done. He's going to do that work at the cross, but he says it's good as done. How are we to have peace in the midst of all that's going on? How are the disciples to have peace? He says, take courage. Take courage. That's in our vernacular cheer up. Cheer up. I, I don't know about you, but that just never works for me when I'm in the midst of suffering going through something rough and somebody puts their arm around me and goes, hey, cheer up. it will be okay. It's about that time that I just want to punch somebody, right? Those are not the right words to say to somebody who's grieving. And yet Jesus says, oh, cheer up. It's very interesting to note this word, it's one word in the Greek, take courage. Every single time that it's used in the New Testament, it's in the imperative. It's a command. You must do this. And every single time it's used it's used uh, by Jesus, it's spoken by Jesus. Because it's one thing for a friend to put their arm around us and say, cheer up, it'll all be okay. Yeah, who are you? Who are you to know that? But it's quite another thing for the God of the universe to put his arm around us and say, cheer up, it'll all be okay. We can trust him because he knows the end from the beginning. So he wraps his arms, as it were, around his disciples, and he says, you are going to have tribulation, but cheer up. Why? Because I've overcome the world. <clears throat> this is John's, one of John's favorite words. He uses it six times in 1 John. He uses it 16 times in Revelation. As one hymn writer says, as surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him But how do we have peace? How do we triumph with Him as well? How do we have peace? There's two conditions, and it's verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. So number one, you need to have these things that He's spoken abiding in you. You need to have the words of Christ abiding in you. If you're going to have peace, you need to understand His words. But the second one, so clear These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And how often do we want to get that peace without the in me? Right? I just, I want peace, but I don't want to have to go through Christ to get that peace. Jesus says, if you are in me, you can have peace. If you are in the finished work of the Son, you can have peace. So, just as we asked about joy, question before us this morning is, how's our peace? Is it well with your soul? Do you trust God? Do you trust Him? We often do not trust God because we are suspicious of what He's up to. This is what Horatio Bonner said, man's dislike of God's sovereignty arises from man's suspicion of God's heart. I don't really want to believe that God is in control of everything because I don't really know what his heart's like. Well, here is his heart on full display. The Father has deep affection for you such that the Son will do whatever it takes to reconcile you to the Father. You have unlimited access to the Father because of the work of the Son. So how's your peace? Do you trust God? Robert Morris, the uh, editor from Banner of Truth, again, he says this, the degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading authors, especially you know, giants in the faith, when they say words like that, this is what it all hinges on. My ears kind of prick up a little bit. I, okay, what, what, what is it hinging on? Your peace of mind depends on your spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between yourself and your anxiety, to put God there, to have a filter, to see your anxiety through the lens of God's character. So how's your peace? Let the thought of God be the filter through which we interpret every circumstance to see He is always working for our greatest good and for His greatest glory such that we have joy that can never be taken away from us, and we have peace in the midst of the hardest circumstances. So, as we wrap all this up and we end chapter 16, how is your joy and your peace? How is your joy and your peace? I know that there are some of you that are in the midst of excruciating circumstances and pain and sorrow. And I want to encourage you this morning, just a quote that I read in a completely different book that reminded me of this circumstance. If you are in the midst of trying times, and you love Jesus and you're wondering what's going on, maybe, perhaps, God is getting ready to use you. Um, As one author says, when God wants to use a man, he takes him and crushes him. If you're in the midst of crushing right now, Don't fear, because number one, the very same thing that brings you grief will bring you joy. And number two, maybe God is producing in you something that will be able to be used by Him beyond your wildest comprehension. If you're in the midst of sorrow, remember Psalm 30, verse 5. Sorrow will last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Maybe your night is your entire life. But joy is coming. For a Christian, sorrow endures for a time and then is turned to joy. So, If you're in the midst of suffering, if you're in the midst of sorrow, hold on to the promises of God. Hold on to the blood-bought promises that Christ has purchased for you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Nothing can separate you from his love. You have unlimited access to the Father who loves you. Maybe you're here this morning and you have great joy. Maybe you are incredibly happy. Can I just ask, why are you happy? As I said earlier, tell me what you find the greatest joy in in life, and I can show you what your God is. That's why C.S. Lewis said, Don't ever place your greatest hope and satisfaction in something that you can lose. Don't ever place your greatest hope and your greatest joy and your greatest satisfaction in something that can be taken away. If your hope and your joy and your satisfaction is in Christ and he is unchanging, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will never forsake you and will never leave you, then you have joy that won't go anywhere. You have joy that cannot be taken away. If your hope is in Christ, in his work, if your hope is in the Father's love and unlimited access to him, then no one can take away your joy or your peace. Informed faith fuels joy and peace. So as we end, I just want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. One passage as we wrap up Jesus' teaching on joy and peace. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. After writing about the unbreakable assurance that we have in the work of the Son... Paul says this, Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory is so big that it makes the suffering come into perspective. It's not even worth being compared to. The badness of the bad in your life is nothing compared to the goodness of the good that God has for you. So he says, verse 19, "...the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves." waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we have hope, and if we hope for what we do not see, then with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. We have hope. What Paul is saying is, what you know in the light Don't forget that in the dark times. What has been clearly revealed to you in the light, don't doubt because there's darkness. You have hope, cling to that hope. God's not changing in the midst of the darkness. He's always with you, and he's always for you. And that's why he says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, since God is for us, then no one can be against us. Because of the unbreakable and unassailable work of the Son, because of the unlimited access we have before the Father, and because of the Father's unrestrained affection for us, we can have joy and peace in the midst of whatever we are going through. Brothers and sisters, we should be the happiest people on the planet because we have a shelter in the storm who is in complete control and will bring about your good and his glory both now and and in eternity forever. And that is what brings us joy and peace that is eternal, impervious, and invincible. God, we thank you so much for the words of our Lord. And I just pray that we, as we have sat under his words and his teaching, that we would respond with a genuine question of our own joy and peace. Do we know why we have it if we have it? Do we know why we don't have it if we don't have it? And when we run to this promise that there is a way to receive joy that cannot be taken away, peace that cannot be altered. Father, I pray for any in this room that does not know the work of the Son, does not realize that try as they might, their own good works cannot get them to God. My own good works are filthy rags. They are not able to cleanse me of my sin, and to make me perfect before God. But that's what you require. You require perfection. I cannot enter into your presence if I have one aspect of sin in my life. And that's why we love you, Jesus. We love you because you did not leave us to die in our sinful condition. You came, we're going to celebrate it at Christmas. You were born as a human to live the perfect sinless life that I needed to live to get to God on my own, but I could never live because of my sin. And on the cross, you bore the wrath of God. The punishment for my sin fell upon Christ. And Father, you treated your son as if he had lived my sinful life so that you could treat me as if I lived Christ's perfect life. And then you raised Christ from the dead affirming for all eternity the sacrifice is enough. It's finished. It's paid in full. What is left for us to do but to believe those realities of the gospel are true and to let those realities change the entirety of our life. To follow you because you first loved us. God, for those that do not know If they were to die tonight, that they would stand before you and they would assuredly be entered into heaven because of the work of Jesus. If they don't have that confidence, God may today be the day of salvation. And God, for those in this room who know with confidence that to live is Christ and to die is gain and we have hope and joy and peace that can never be taken away because we have a Christ who can never be taken away and nothing can separate us from his love, God, may we celebrate, even as we sing now, May we celebrate with hearts that are filled with gratefulness and thankfulness that we have a shelter. No matter what happens, you are working all things for our good. And may we cling to the hope that we have in Christ, run to the shelter that we have in his finished work. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.